this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. The world and work of financial executives has changed forever, and many will spend much of this year trying to recalibrate. There is no rule book for what lies ahead. The way to manage people and organizations will need to be completely rebuilt. During the first quarter of this year, the Financial Executive Research Foundation, in cooperation with Robert Half and Pertivity, held live in-depth Q&A discussions with leaders on the ways in which organizations are charting a new course on how and where they will work. The participants included people like Ellen Giovanelli and Jim Paterno of Stockton Real Estate, Susan McAndrew of Willis Towers Watson, Brian Voigt and Jeff Wilkes of Brigham Young University Merritt School of Business, and Jason Flanners, Executive Director of Robert Half Management Resources. In this episode of the podcast, we wrap up and put context around those discussions with Paul McDonald of Robert Half and Chris Wright of Protivity. Yeah, so over the past year, businesses have adopted, you know, really rapidly the environment that the COVID-19 pandemic has created. Paul, uh, let's start with you. What do you think are the three lessons that they've learned over this period? Yeah, well, if I had to only pick three, um, I'd say the first one I think of is agility is a business imperative. Organizations are moving quickly uh, to adapt to this pandemic environment. They had to pivot very, very quickly um, back a year ago. But as we polled um, managers at Robert Half and outside the organization, nearly four in 10 managers said they've prioritized digital transformation in response to the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, um, you know, digital transformation is really important. It leads me to the second one, um, readying the finance function. Readying the finance function in their organization um, through digital transformation has never been um, more important. I mean, the the pace of change, the need for change, uh, it seemed like uh, in the beginning of the pandemic and continuing on for the last um, year, we've seen a lot of uh, change and necessary change in order to meet the demands of the business. The last piece is less about um, the ability to change and the ability to ready the finance function, but it would be leadership versus management. I think a lot of people have been really tested with their leadership skills versus management skills during this pandemic. And it's really, this is, I think, going to be a lasting change for many organizations. It's like helping people through this um, pandemic, through empathy, through caring, through, and I know that sounds touchy-feely, but quite frankly, this leads to retention of staff because there's a lot of people that are currently dissatisfied, and I'll get into this later, but dissatisfied with their current employers as the way they've been treated through the pandemic. And word of caution, unemployment rate for college degreed workers um, is 3.8%. Many of those people that you're looking for, finance managers, analysts, accountants, auditors, those are all in the two, three, and um, low four percentage rates of unemployment. Therefore, Empathy and leadership are really a, a, a key to managing through this pandemic and beyond. Chris, are you seeing those sort of same dynamics and same issues? 
Yeah, all, all of the above to to what Paul offered. Uh, each of those three are, would would be my top three as well. Uh, relationships matter would be sort of an overarching uh, description of what what companies have learned when you think about those top three. Uh, knowing people really well enough to be able to be effective, knowing their situation, knowing what work what what life is like, so that you understand how to achieve work life balance. And then showing um, what you always said, you know, everyone had, uh, and so from the, from human relations to not, everyone had a business continuity plan. Most companies did. What they learned last year was whether they were capable of business continuity management. Did it work? Did they, was it up to date or did they have to go dust it off and hope it worked or find it? Um, and then with, with people, it, it's been the same thing. You've got a, we've got a, you know, a mission, vision, and value statement for how we treat our people and organizations have found that they're, as, to, as Paul said, their employees are, are they want to see that, show me that, that, that was your value. That was, those are your ethics. These are your moral imperatives. And then, because we're about to prove whether those statements were true and companies spent the last year, uh, proving it or trying to. Great. So let's go into the uh, the first uh, quote here and, and listen to what the you know what people are talking about the office. So um, we polled our, our tenants recently, and um, with no exception, every single uh, decision maker has um, stated unequivocally the desire to get back to the office, the need to get back to the office, the need for not only the human connection and collaboration, but just the idea that without a place to assemble, congregate, celebrate, um, cheer on, teach, there really isn't a, a true company. And yes, there are some technology companies and others that are much more comfortable uh, with the concept of remote. But even our, our high-tech companies, ones that I would have that, that would have said, you know what, we're done. We're working from home. This is great. Everyone's on a headset. Everyone's heads down on a computer screen. We don't need, you know, need them all in the same place. They actually have said that their corporate culture is suffering more than others because they had the Friday afternoon keggers. They had the free, the, the lunches. They had reasons for their younger workforce to socialize and to go out after work and to stop at a bar or a restaurant or to meet people and, and establish relationships that kind of extended beyond the office. And um, they're really, the technology companies are really struggling with how to replicate that. So much like we hear about revenge travel or re revenge dining where everyone's gonna just jump out there and, and immediately start to travel and get out to dinner, there is this element of, especially in the city and, and walkable suburban locations, this real desire to get back to the office get back to be with your colleagues and friends, uh, maybe escape the house a little bit too, and and really reestablish a human connection. So really critical. I do think there's gonna be a snapback. I think it's gonna be powerful. I mean, if, if we look at activity though right now, leasing activity generally in the country is down about 60% year over year. New York is almost 70%, San Francisco is over 50%. Sale activity is down almost 60%. So there's definitely, you know, a muted uh, environment at the moment. But that is really, I think, a, a, 
uh, a moment in time that is going to be unleashed once people feel a little bit more comfortable. So we listened a little bit uh, from Jim talking about, you know, the return in the office and, and the issues around that. Uh, I'll start with you, Chris. How have you seen your clients start to dip their, toe, their toes into bringing people back into the office? And how are they balancing safety and, and the need, really, the requirement to get people back to normal? It's a great, it's a great question. And I, I, I think when you, when, when we've seen companies struggle with this and discuss it, and we've convened more than a few roundtables, largely of finance executives, but often, uh, or internal audit executives who then have tentacles into the rest of the organization. And the, the, the delineation line has been the difference between returning to the workplace and necessarily returning to the office. So returning to the warehouse, to the factory, to the lab, Absolutely. They figured that out and they've given that a priority. And so some of the folks who were in offices may be the last ones back in. You know, finance might have been the first out or nearly the first out and finance because they don't need to operate a lab. They figured out how to work remotely. They figured out all of the domains and apps and, and, and workflows that allow them to be remote may be the ones who stay remote to keep the density down in the building. But to your question on balancing safety and the need for, for normalcy. And so safety first does people have meant what they they said there and the folks who are in the office are managing their return in a way that allows the folks who have to be there to have more space so that they're safer and so what i would say is the clients are, aren't necessarily dipping their toes into bringing people back in the office yet although in some cases so there are exceptions they're all at the stage now where everybody's working through protocols what will that look like? When is that happening? How are they going to, uh, e even some of the logistics, can they ask if you've been vaccinated? Can they require that you be vaccinated? Uh, can they do the same for their vendors who come through the door and, and their suppliers or their customers? And so right now, I would say that many companies, if not most, are in that protocol development and, and maybe dipping their toes because they're testing the operation of the protocols. But in a full-scale way, finance is generally speaking not back yet. Uh, because they've had to give give uh, give um, higher level of precedence and order to the folks who need to be in in the building to move product or to develop product. Paul, are you are you seeing the same thing? I would say, I mean, it's just to, to add on a couple of thoughts and comments. What we're seeing is, you know, we're based in Silicon Valley in Northern California as a company, and we're monitoring um, our neighbors all the time. We have operations around the globe and you know, it's a moving target. The timeline. So tipping your uh, dipping your toe in the um, in, in the water, so to speak. Who knows, based upon the ebbs and the flows of what the virus and the pandemic um, is, it, it, where it is, and what the local health of municipalities and governments are saying can happen. So having said all that, I know that we're um, targeting, it's a moving target, but we're targeting at Robert Half, some of our corporate services offices opening up in July. Now the capacity would be 40 to 50%, um, if that. But that, again, it's early days. The protocols are developed. We're monitoring the situation. Um, but I would say that I'm extremely happy with what I'm hearing from our clients. And internally, I'm witnessing the level of productivity that we're seeing. So regardless of where we stand in terms of reopening, if you will, that means in the office, 
I have to say that using um, you know the technology tools that we've uh, we've developed and our clients have developed they have extremely productive workforces today. So I think we're proving out that we can work remotely. We can work in a hybrid approach. And uh, but I, we are hearing, quite frankly, that most employees want to get back in the office. They miss the collaboration. They miss the social aspects of you know uh, maybe going to lunch for a, for a half hour with someone um, and being part of a community. So that's another thing I'd add on to there is people are thinking about dipping their toes in. Employees do wanna get back, but there's also some things that employees are telling us that they like the hybrid approach as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I think that'll uh, merge nicely into the next uh, clip we're gonna hear from Suzanne McAndrew at, at Willis talking about that aspect of community and especially when it refers to uh, diversity and inclusion. So let's listen to that. Yeah. So your employee listening strategy, you know, these, these strategies have evolved over time. Um, and so it's worth a reset on how you're listening to employees. Um, it used to be organizations, um, leading organizations would go out annually um, to listen to employees through big surveys. But what we found is that organizations need to develop a, a, a two-pronged approach. So you need to have a continuous listening strategy um, and that continuous listening strategy needs to um, have both passive ways that you're listening and active ways that, that you're listening. So let me start with the active ways because you'll probably be more comfortable with that because the passive ways get into a little big brother, right? Um, the active ways are are the ways that you are creating um, pulse moments, a regular pulse that can be distributed with the right frequency and flexibility across the employee life cycle. So that uh, for one organization, for example, um, that I work with a large consumer goods company, they actually delegated that pulse during COVID to each geography, right? Because each geography was going through different challenges at different times. So rather than make it a big global machine all the time, there were very geographically focused pulses. One was just on how's work going. One was on well-being. One was on, you know, what, what other support do you need? One was on, um, you know, work, work, life balance. So you're able to get a quick snapshot of um, that information. On your active listening strategy, you should also think about the right segmentation. Um, your managers out there are the center of everything. I think we're all managers. Raise your hand, you know, in some way or shape or form. How are you getting a, the pulse of how your managers are coping with helping your your employees cope with all the changes? So, or or how are your high potentials adapting to what's needed? Or you know, we we went to also different segments from a diversity and inclusion lens as well with a lot of different employers. So this this pulse on active listening is important, as well as um, stand up. Um, informal ways to listen. I love this with my clients. I think there's no reason why you can't stand up a team's discussion and talk to people in real speak how, how they're doing or do some virtual focus groups. That's a tool we have that enables thousands of people to be on one platform and chat real time with that sentiment analysis. 
And then on the active, the passive listening side, um, you should be very open to exploring just the variety of different tools that are going to help you understand how um, people are operating and behaving. Um, you know, for example, Microsoft Workplace Analytics, they have some great data on how people are managing their time. So I think you can start to get different patterns of places where people are struggling as you kind of combine those strategies into a continuous listening strategy. So we've heard from Suzanne and, and a lot of great points about work-life balance and, and um, how to really listen. Um, Paul, I'll, I'll go to you first. Do you feel employers, especially in the financial suite, are listening to their employees enough? Uh, what do you consider you know, the best way to do that and best practices to have a dialogue in the current environment? Well, early early on in the pandemic, I remember having a, uh, a short webcast with one of your chapters, actually, at the FEI. It was upstate New York, Rochester. And we talked about um, increasing the level of communication with your teams. Having, you know, and we, we talked about uh, increasing one-on-ones to the point where a lot of people didn't, weren't comfortable having the frequency of communication that we, we were actually recommending. And with some of the um, polls that we got off that um, webinar, it told us that uh, individuals needed to step up and, and have more frequent conversations. So we're seeing that finance leaders are generally concerned about the ability at this point to hold on to their top talent and listening making sure that they're present, they're caring, as we talked about earlier. Um, and, you know, retention, as I mentioned, and have been mentioning for a while, retention is key. We did a, a survey with some um, finance leaders and 86% of them are really concerned about losing top um, talent and top performers right now in the next 12 months as a, the economy starts to open back up and things start to get, you know, the unemployment rate comes down. So increasing dialogue, increasing listening, increasing transparency. So town halls have been extremely interesting, not only from a finance and accounting uh, department um, and function standpoint, but the entire organization uh, having town halls, having open Q and A's and delivering bad news as well. I mean, it, you know, bad news is not fun to deliver, but we have found that if you level set with employees, they understand where you're at, that you make them part of the solution as, a part of, as opposed to part of the problem. And when they feel part of something, they wanna move forward with you. Con combine that with constant communication, with empathy, I think you're gonna have a, a good recipe for uh, retention. Chris, what, what, what are your thoughts on communication, especially in, in what we're going through right now? I think Paul touched on on all the major all the major themes. I, I think the uh, what we've seen in in surveys and roundtables of CFOs and other folks in finance has been that they're, you know, they folk they're focusing on the means by which to communicate. They made sure that they could connect, whether that was a Teams, Zoom, or Skype decision, for example, mobile apps, uh, access to to remote offices. But they're also still focused on things like succession planning. And I think Paul alluded to it earlier, uh, people have figured out job mobility even remotely. 
and and the good and the, and the good people, the top performers, will be much easier to move than others. And so, uh, you know, they're they're asking the right questions, and they've created the means to do it. I think one of the other things about communication, maybe also knowing when not to communicate, and this is really a work life balance. Uh, so we see a lot of tactical uh, mobilization around the idea that, you know, understand time zones in a remote work environment and try not to uh, make it so that half your staff has to have a, a sandwich at the at their laptop because you, in, you intruded on their lunch from your time zone. Right. Un- understand also um, that maybe it's a good idea to try to do a day without Zoom and maybe pick a day. Now, emergencies come up, but you can at least plan around it. And, and I think we've all gotten used to the, the notion with, with varying measures of success of the Friday afternoon where we can sort of make that a, a no man's land. Let's not schedule calls or meetings late, late on a Friday, give people a chance to now that kids are playing soccer, you know, late day calls, make it possible for them to get to the game, that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's become as much about what to communicate and how to listen. And in some instances as how, how to minimize that as well. So finding that right balance between, sharing information and doing a round table and doing a town hall to remain remembering what time of day and what best, what day is best to do it. Yeah. Those are all great points. And I I certainly really think that feeds into the the final session that we did this quarter. Um, And so we level set on, you know, what existing staff are are thinking about, but, you know, we turned the tables and said, okay, let's look at what, you know, how this fits in, fits into when you want to bring somebody on board about the recruitment and and um, um, you know, so so we um, talked with some uh, leaders uh, from the accounting profession in, that, in some of the universities and as well as a rubber half professional and this is one of the points they brought up. We've been working for years and uh, in, in embedding into our curriculum efforts to help people be more inclusive and help people understand and be empathetic. But what happened last year, uh, particularly with Black Lives Matter and uh, social unrest uh, related to what's happening in the country, what an accelerant. Uh, that, that made it so much more possible for us to push ourselves and within our curriculum and receive resources from some of the great companies and firms out there to say, you know what? here's here's some things we're doing we can help with this so where we had some help in in previous years it was almost overwhelming the amount of assistance and ideas and people willing to jump in and say let's let's work on this so for us in addition to adding it to the curriculum where we'd already been working to you know with pwc's blind spots for examples and uh unconscious bias uh we were able to turn our focus a little bit more to you know, beyond race and gender and to focus on LGBTQ uh, the community as well as first generation students. Uh, one of the things that changed for us, t- I want to say two or three years ago at BYU, we changed our admissions policy uh, to, we used to, it'd be like a checklist. Tell us all the things you did in high school, all the extracurricular activities you did. And uh, in, a, in a sweeping uh, change, we recognized that's going to favor a certain type of applicant uh, and uh, and background. So we got to essentially got rid of that and focus on essays that allow people to explain uh, what their you know the challenges that they had overcome. That they worked part time all the way through high school, and uh, we I believe we got close to doubling the number of our first generation college students when we switched that approach. Which means 
we have to be more aware now uh, in, in our efforts in diversity, equity, and inclusion to take students who may never have seen a college environment before and they don't have necessarily parents, uh, uh, friends who can tell them about it, and we can help them pay much more attention to what we can do to help them get through and be successful as a result. But uh, I would say, you know, it's not COVID related. It's it's the Black Lives Matter and uh, so much more of a universal awareness now that's allowed us to be more direct and in, in addressing this in the curriculum and applying some of the things that we had started before, but can really focus on now. That's wonderful. Brian, any any additional thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I totally agree with what Jeff just said. I, I think COVID has brought out the fact that there may be some um, more inequities uh, among students and maybe we, we really realized um, access to uh, scholarships or, or jobs or other things. Um, so a little bit more kind of some of the um, social ju justice and systemic um, bias, maybe that, you know, we've was raised during the summer. Um, I, I've seen play out a, a little bit um, in because of I wouldn't say it was because of COVID, but because of the of the movement last last summer. Um, in that, um, I think COVID just a little bit of the isolation has maybe um, you know heightened that a little bit. Uh, I do think corporations have a, a great opportunity though to kind of reinforce DEI principles that are being taught on campus um, in the classroom and present themselves as, as themselves engaged in this work um, through either recruiting efforts or sponsored special events. Last night, Goldman Sachs um, held a special panel for us at BYU on how to be an ally in the LGBTQ community, right? Um, and so, you know, that was attended by, by students, faculty, staff. Um, and, and so I think there's a great opportunity to kind of for corporations, again, to kind of really partner um, with universities in um, in bringing this kind of aware, awareness and, and developing um, at the, the curriculum around that. Uh, I want to start with you, Chris. What are some of the best practices you are seeing when it comes to diversity inclusion and how much work does the finance and accounting world need to do in this area? Great question. And, the, you know, the finance and accounting world, you know, more or less, depending on what the industry is and, and what part of the world or country you're in, may have more or less to do in the areas of diversity and inclusion. But there's a there's a lot of sensitivity uh, in, in the workforce. You know, the pandemic wasn't the only tragic, jarring, terrible thing to happen last year. Right? We had violence and uh, discrimination against the African-American, Latinx and Asian-American Pacific Islander communities. That was profound. And also tragic, jarring, and terrible. Uh, and, and, and the employee base knows that, including those who, who, who aren't any of those three, uh, you know, generally, generationally. And so when you think about diversity and inclusion, it's, you have to separate that into diversity and inclusion. Diversity is something, you know, accountants are good at. We're good at having a list and measuring it. And so uh, if, if you know where you are, having good data on your diversity profile, and then having a good goal and maybe a good session around where you'd hope to be. And then measuring progress and diversity is fairly visible one way or the other, depending on what you're trying to achieve. And so you can, you can achieve diversity numerically and prove it to your organization and to yourselves. It's not that it's necessarily easy to hire and, and to retain, but then the second question is, are those, is everybody included? And so one is sort of a, 
is a management exercise that I think we can all mobilize around. It, it, it lends itself to, to um, heat maps and bar charts and, and where are we? Inclusion has to become programmatic. And so some of the best practices we're seeing there are not only hiring uh, for diversity, but then creating inclusion from day one, you know, from orientation through the first hundred days or whatever, whatever the plan is. We've only had a year. Uh, a lot of us have hired people we've never, never even met. And so how do you get to know somebody who you've only seen on screen? And so creating sponsorship opportunity, ment- mentoring on steroids, if you will, not just mentor um, somebody who's willing to be a, a good idea, but somebody who's there to be the sponsor of the new hire for the, to promote them to the rest of the organization, because everyone knows you and we've only met this person on screen. And so diversity, again, can be, it can be a numeric, not easy to achieve, but you can track it, but inclusion is requiring mentoring and sponsorship programs that are real. And that requires understanding people and matching the right people. It's not just going to be based on level and title, but really understanding, you know, am, am I a better uh, sponsor or mentor for this person versus that person? Cause you need to know a little bit about both of us. And so the programs there we're seeing uh, that are developing are also, I would say, bringing in outsiders who have diverse points of view. Otherwise it's pretty easy to convince yourself that you're doing a great job. Right. And so sounding that off against others, uh, and, and getting their views on what they think of what you think you're doing so that you have, have good frames of reference. Well, what, what are your points of view? Well, I would say in addition to the very thorough list that Chris just um, listed out is that I'm going to, um, I'm going to start with where I was going to end. And that is, this is just the right thing to do for every industry, for every corporation, for every department, not just finance and accounting. The boardrooms are looking at this. They've been talking about it um, for a while. And and now from the bottom up, all of our rank and file employees across the globe are looking at this and and measuring us. So it's the right thing to do. It's the, from a talent perspective, it's um, it's the correct thing to do and they're demanding it. So having said that, um, being transparent on what are what are your best what are your practices for DEI within your organization, um, being transparent, what are you doing? Acknowledge your progress. If you've missed the mark in the past, acknowledge that. And, and as Chris said, measure it with your teams moving forward and have um, annual reports as well as quarterly reports on your progress. I think those are some of the best practices I'm seeing, but uh, you know, the boardroom's looking at it, every level of employees looking at it, and your new hires are measuring you. you the, ones, the people you're going after to bring on board, they're looking at your progress on this over the past few months, over the past year. And they're deciding, uh, uh, along with ESG, they're looking at this DEI as, do I want to be part of this company? What's the culture of the company? What are my prospects of moving forward in this um, company? So those are all great points when it comes to, you know, uh, when we talk about recruiting. But I want to level set because a lot of the discussion we have over the past quarter is about, um, you know, bringing people back from, to, to the workplace. It's about the whole change and the dynamic of work-life balance. So, uh, Paul, I wanted to start with you. You know, given the experience over the last year, how has the dialogue around work-life balance, and has that changed forever? Is there a pre-pandemic, post-pandemic dialogue around work-life, and in what ways is that different in the finance and accounting space than any other portions of, of a, a corporation. So Paul, maybe yeah. I'll start with you. 
In the past um, years, the three years, I'll say prior to the pandemic, we saw a, uh, a nice to have with many organizations and they were offering employees the opportunity to maybe work a day at home, maybe work, you know, um, and that could be Friday or Monday. Uh, it was a nice to have. Uh, human resource departments were talking about it. Finance and accounting leaders were chatting about it. Um, and, but it wasn't, a, it, it wasn't a broad brush across all organizations. Roll forward to March of 2020, and we were required to work from home. We were required to work remotely. Those organizations that had um, technology investments um, prior to the pandemic pivoted um, more quickly than others. Um, so it was mainstream because it was mandatory to work uh, remotely and have uh, work-life balance. But what, what we find is that the organizations that had great leadership and management through the pandemic were emphasizing something called windowed work. So this goes into you're working from home. The tendency um, for many of us is to work you know, 18 hour days because we're home in our office and we don't turn it off. So windowed work, that whole concept was, you know, start your day when you normally would start after your commute. Take your break um, during the morning or take your break at lunch hour. Take your break. And good management and leadership were emphasizing that. I think that's here to stay. That's here to stay. But this hybrid work approach uh, in the future, who knows what's going, um, going to happen because we don't know how long we're going to be remote. But this is what I'm hearing based upon most organizations today, including ours. We're going to have some uh, uh, adoption of certain skill sets that are willing or able to work remotely. And because that those people want to work remote, they live in an area and they have expertise where they're going to work um, 100 percent remote. But what we're hearing is that there's going to be this you know, hybrid approach where it's two or three days um, in the office, two days at home. Um, individuals that are used to traveling, like, uh, you know, most of us um, on this, um, and Chris and I are used to traveling, you know, 80, 85 percent of the time. Uh, that will get back to normal at some point, but we're still going to have our employee, our mid-management that wants to work in this hybrid approach. So uh, HR departments are really addressing this. The CFOs that I'm in dialogue with are looking at it. And quite frankly, um, as the unemployment rate comes down and continues to come down, I think we're going to start seeing more organizations that rather than have a nice to have pre-pandemic, it's gonna be here to stay in this hybrid approach or remote workforce. Chris, what are you, has it here to stay? Has things changed forever in a couple of respects? I think um, well, the conversation about work-life balance will remain forever. Uh, I think work-life balance dynamic has probably changed forever, but to Paul's point, I don't know that it is stuck in the pendulum position it's in today either. It's just that it's probably never going to be like it was before the pandemic, right? And and to his point, windowed work. I, you know, you've heard people use the frame, uh, the term, are, "Am I working from home or do I live at work?" You know, or you know, what do you do? Work, church, and home. They just happen to all be from home right now. So you know, that you do have to um, the, the work life balance. And, and and back to kind of an earlier point, the leadership messaging around calendaring meetings needs to sort of respect that and and create the boundaries that uh, the walls of your home don't 
you know, in terms of when does the day start? When does the day end? And put your lid down, you know, and for the rest of the day, if I need to reach you, it'll be an iPad or, or iPhone worthy attachment, but you won't need the full suite of services that you normally would have up and running for a workday. So almost the same way you would if the person had gone home for the evening. You use the same discretion about needing to reach somebody that you would if you were thinking, should I really call this person on their cell phone? Is it that important? And so that, that's where the work-life balance discussion is these days, is how to create sort of a, 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 a boundary around the day that allows people to have an evening and a morning that are distinct from the workday and, and even a weekend. Um, you know, but still understand that even beforehand, you probably had to work the occasional weekend for the quarterly close. Right. So I, I think it's changed. I think it's going to be different than it ever was, but not necessarily what it, what it is today. Those are all great points. And I think, you know, the discussion is going to go beyond just what we talked about uh, in this quarter's forward thinking. And I think it's a dialogue that's going to continue. So, Paul, Chris, I want to thank you both. Thank you for your sponsorship of this program. And um, we look forward to even greater discussions. Thank you very much.